You are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast, where I discuss writing, specifically today my own writing, as we get into Nero, Avenging New America. I'm not sure how much I'm going to read and discuss on this episode today. The novella slash short story series has eight stories within it, so it starts in the year 2130 and ends in the year 2137. I'm not fond of it ending on an odd number, but technically it ends on an even number, and I hate math. Anyway, I have a selection of talking points that I want to get to, the first being that my Kindle... My Kindle Paperwhite does not support Kindle Vela, which is news to me. And as I'm trying to get Nero on my Kindle, I just found this out moments before the podcast, and I'm wondering how the hell are Kindle users supposed to use Kindle Vela when most Kindles don't even fucking accept Kindle Vela stories for some reason. So I had to grab my cable, hook my Kindle up to my computer, and I had to quickly put together a Word document with all eight stories and then use Calibre to put it on my Kindle. I'm currently using my Kindle to read Holly Madison's book. More on that later. Last week, I covered... W.B. Welch's Wet Water. And as a result, I didn't really talk much about my interview with her. And I need to address it for several reasons. Now, W.B. Welch is awesome. So everything that I'm about to say is a reflection of me and not her. I'm not going to say anything negative, but I do need to address a few things. Um, I've said things on this podcast previously, and I'm only mentioning this because I don't like it when people are hypocrites, and I've said things to the effect of my books are never going to rise in price, which is not true. So, because there were not that many people chomping at the bit to buy my novels and my short story collections for 99 cents on Kindle. And a recent tweet from my friend Zev Good, I decided to up the price of those. My poetry collections are still 99 cents. Now, I didn't want to go through all of them and change the price, so that's one reason why they're still 99 cents. But also, poetry is a different market than just fiction. So I am kind of hypocritical for that because I always wanted to keep my books at 99 cents, but over the past year with my experiences of marketing and selling shit, while there are people who are sort of appreciative that it's only a buck, I have had more people question why it's a buck and not more money. 
and my response has always been, I would rather people choose to feed themselves or their families than have to choose reading my book. So I've always offered free copies. I still offer free copies. I'm actually sending a free signed copy to someone this weekend. I was supposed to send it earlier this week, but me and my wife were very busy with work. It's been very hectic lately. But I don't want everyone DMing me for free paperbacks. What I mean is I will send you a PDF, a Mobi file, whatever the hell you want of the book if you want it. Just DM me. Now, I have had that offer on the table since 2019, since I started my Twitter, and have had less than five people take me up on the offer. A lot of people say that they would rather buy the book, and I'm fine with that. Uh, I would rather you read the book, regardless of whether or not you buy it. And I'd love to hear if you like it. If you don't like it, um, I would. I assume that if you don't say anything, that you hate it and you'd rather not speak to me. That's usually not the case. But it's interesting that there are a lot of people who have read my books, but they never bothered writing reviews. I've gotten ratings, um, and Demise of the Trinity has 18 reviews on Amazon, but Price of the Trinity... And Surviving New America do not have any reviews as of July 31st, 2021. Not on Amazon, at least. And with Goodreads... See, the thing is, is that on Amazon you can at least see if someone's actually bought your book. And I am of the opinion that Amazon should not let people review your book unless they are a verified purchaser. Because there's only one way for them to buy the product, and that's through Amazon. So Amazon should be able to tell whether or not this person is legit. That's for indie authors, though. I don't give a shit about Stephen King. But anyway, back to the point. I've also stated on this podcast that I did not want to interview people and I didn't want to have guests on. The difference this time is that, for one thing, I like W.B. Welch. I think she's a cool person. She reached out to me because she wanted to promote her upcoming novella, Rose's Gold. By the way, go check it out. It's on Kindle. Uh, I think she did a free giveaway. Um, Be on the lookout for that because she does that often. I actually got wet water and the last letter through one of her free giveaways, I think. But... I also bought um, the last letter, or was it Blood Drops? I think I bought Blood Drops, yes, on my previous Kindle account, and I re-downloaded it on this one, so I've technically bought it twice. Back to the point. Since I've stated that I would not have guests on, it does come off as a little hypocritical for me to suddenly have a guest on, but... I like W.B. Welch, and I wanted to help her promote her book in any way I could. And there's another part to that. Um, She is dealing with health issues right now. I'm not going to specify what, even though she has been pretty open about it. And she has a GoFundMe to help with medical costs. And that's kind of how she and I got to know each other a little bit better because... 
I offered to help her with any appeals or anything since I have experience with that through my professional life. But she's an awesome person. She's an awesome writer. And that's why I had her on. Now, I'm not going to start having a lot of guests on. I would love to have Zev Good on. He's the first person to come to mind that I would like to have on. But I've point blank had other people ask me, and I turned them down. So I don't want anyone out there. I don't think anyone really gives a shit, okay? I'm just, you know, I'm the person who holds people to their word. And when they break that, Everyone does at some point, but when they, they fuck up, I'll usually at least wag my finger at them, you know? Anyway, point being, I had a guest on, I'm not going to have more guests on for the foreseeable future. I appreciate WB Welch. I think that that was a great episode. And interviewing her gave me more ideas for potential interviews in the future. I have discovered that how I interviewed her was actually pretty unique and cool in that I got her to to at least open up a bit about her writing process in a way that she may not have in just a plain Jane writing interview. And I thought that would have been boring as hell if I just asked her about Rose's gold and her writing. I thought that would be boring as shit. I wouldn't want to listen to it. And most writing podcasts where they have guests on are boring to me. I have tried to sit through them because I knew the people who were conducting them and I just could not do it. So that's another reason why I don't want guests on here most of the time. Now, as I said, I'd fucking love to have Zev on. I have not asked him. I don't have plans to ask him, uh, but he would probably be the one exception. Now, if Bukowski comes back from the grave, I'll talk to him. So, other than W.B. Welch in the interview from two episodes ago, uh, my next talking point is Holly Madison. I have a series of different interests that have come up throughout the year, one of them being my family history and genealogy, but suddenly I have taken an interest in Hugh Hefner and Holly Madison. Now, I follow Holly Madison on TikTok. I don't follow Holly Madison on TikTok because she's pretty. She's gorgeous, but I follow her because she's actually interesting. She's intelligent. And she's presented content in very interesting ways to the point where I think she probably has a YouTube channel that I just haven't checked out yet. But I think that her content is is not one-sided. It's not just one thing over and over again. She doesn't just do makeup tutorials or outfit showcases. She doesn't do a lot of unboxing. She does various things that are entertaining, and it led me to reading her book. And I'm in the middle of it now. I've gotten to where she has introduced Kendra Wilkinson to... I don't know much about her. I don't know much about anyone in this book. I 
only know Hugh Hefner through his reputation of Playboy, his contributions to the literary world. He's published so many great authors in Playboy, Ray Bradbury, Margaret Atwood. I don't know if he's ever published Hunter S. Thompson, but I wouldn't be surprised. I know that Shel Silverstein wrote for Playboy. Uh, I just found out that there is a Bukowski interview with Playboy, but I haven't been able to read it. I think the only version I saw was in German. So that's fun. But I wanted to talk about this book for one thing because while this is a writing podcast, that's in quotations, it's pretty well written for an autobiography from someone who is best known for being blonde and having big boobs and being with Hugh Hefner. That's how most people reduce her. I think she's actually really intriguing and intelligent. And the way that she depicts Hugh Hefner, the only little critique I have of this book, and I might not have a right to have this critique, but I'm going to state it anyway. I am 100% team Holly. I believe the things that she says. The only thing that I am not 100% on is how she describes people and their reactions. So the conversations that she describes, they are not strings of dialogue. She usually has one or two quotes of dialogue and she describes the conversation. But the way she describes people's reaction is almost comical because she says that Hugh Hefner would start yelling and screaming almost seemingly out of nowhere and he would start to cry. Now, I know this man was in his 70s and I get the impression that by the time he was with Holly Madison and these other women, he had changed. Now, in the 80s, he had a stroke and he had just been divorced. Well, not divorced, but he was in a separation. His marriage was essentially over. He didn't seem to be terribly close to his two sons. I mean, this guy was in the 70s. But I get, from what I understand, Hugh Hefner in Holly Madison's lifespan and their relationship of, what, eight years, is different from the man that you would have seen in the 60s and 70s and 80s and maybe even the 90s. But the way that he treats her and these other women is pretty fucking despicable. Now, maybe he was always that way. But even Holly describes his past girlfriends and wives because he, she actually meets and interacts with these people. They don't seem to have any issue with him. So she also notes that he keeps friendships with these women in order to preserve an image. He can't have women out there talking shit about him, but you know, 
I don't know the fucker. He's dead. But the way he speaks to Holly Madison is is awful. I mean, he comes off as just purely misogynist. I don't use that word often. So, yeah, my respect, whatever shred of respect I had for him went down considerably. But then I watched an interview with him today on the Dick Covet show where he was talking to a couple of feminist, assumedly scholars. And he conducted himself well. And mind you, he was on camera, so there you have to take that. He's, he knows he's on film. He knows that the world is watching. But he doesn't come across as a sexist. And he has every opportunity to do that. And he apparently has always supported abortion and women's rights. Uh, I would not call Playboy magazine itself a trashy publication. Um, From my perspective, the nude pictorials are generally not even sexy. I mean, it's like looking at a painting because they're so airbrushed and later photoshopped and the makeup and all that. It's not real. You know, there are no stretch marks or scars. That is, to me, what makes something more sensuous is reality, you know. And Playboy is not reality. And I am well aware that there are some short stories and essays, maybe even a lot of the cartoons throughout the years, that are sexist. So there's that. People are complicated. You know, Bukowski was complicated. I talk about Bukowski a lot, and I admire him as a writer and partially as a person, but the reality is that Bukowski could be a real piece of shit. So, and I'm about to talk about Louis C.K. Talk about someone who is not black and white, good or bad, but uh, complicated and problematic. Now, on Twitter, I've not really talked much about Louis C.K. Because the reception that I get whenever I've tweeted about him was nothing. I mean, zero. But truth be told, there was a time where I referred to Louis C.K. as my hero. And then 2017, the shit hit the fan form. And I'm not going to comment on that. I will say that as someone who has known multiple women intimately and each of them have told me stories about men in their lives who abused them, sexually assaulted them, etc. It is absolutely important for you to believe women in their stories. I do think that men should be held accountable. I also think that there is the principle of innocent until proven guilty. And in Louis's case, he admitted to doing what he did. So, take that how you will. But 
He has kept a lower profile since then. He, for instance, does not have his show on FX anymore. I imagine they quit airing it altogether, reruns and all, after 2017. Now, the Louis show on FX was very meaningful to me when I was in college, and his stand-up was also very meaningful to me. It got me through some very rough times. And I related to him in many ways. So, to discover that the people that you love are problematic, well, for one thing, I don't know Louis C.K., and I probably never will. And he'll probably never hear this. So, he was recently on a podcast, and he's been on two episodes of this podcast, and they're, they're both good. It's good to hear from him. And he talks about film. First episode, he talked about Stanley Kubrick films, and he was obviously on the side of Kubrick. Um, the next episode, he talked about Paul Tam- Thomas Anderson films, and I have seen maybe one Paul Thomas Anderson film. I, I actually know I saw Punch Drunk Love, and I could not finish it. The same applies to uh, There Will Be Blood. I tried watching There Will Be Blood. And it was pretty bad. I don't like Daniel Day-Lewis. I think he's overrated as hell. And take my opinion with a grain of salt, because despite the fact that I studied film in college, I also like popcorn movies. I love the Marvel movies. I love DC movies. A lot of people find those movies deplorable. They think that they're ruining cinema. Um, the, the thing about movies is that they've always been about making money. Even Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai was made to make money. If there was no profit to be made in making that work of art, then it would not have been made. Okay? So, just like albums that you hear and you buy... From major artists, those are made to make money. They are businesses. Bands, directors, published writers on major publishing houses. They're businesses. So keep that in mind when you talk about art versus commerce. But Louis was obviously in favor of Paul Thomas Anderson, so I differed with him on that. But he also had to bring up because they brought up the master and then he dissed um the joker the movie with joaquin phoenix which i thought was a great film regardless of whether or not it was a quote-unquote superhero movie it was well directed a lot of people got upset because it was derivative of taxi driver and king of comedy and here's the thing about that I don't think that Martin Scorsese is one of the best directors of all time, by any stretch of the imagination. I think that his last truly through-and-through good movie slash film was Goodfellas. Even that has been so oversaturated in our culture, especially the toxic masculinity of our current culture, especially within film buffs. You know... I love Tarantino movies. I'm leery of 
film buffs who bring up Pulp Fiction. I love Pulp Fiction, but my wife doesn't like Pulp Fiction at all. I've never watched it with her. The only Tarantino movie that my wife has ever enjoyed was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So, um, yeah, I like superhero movies. And I thought The Joker was a fantastic film. I thought Avengers Endgame was a fantastic film. I think both of those were on par with The Dark Knight, which is also a great film. Now, this isn't a film podcast, and I would actually... I thought about not doing an episode on films. I thought about doing a series on the show Atlanta. Um, there are some concerns on my part for that because I was I was looking for an Atlanta podcast because I like TV show podcasts. And there wasn't one, not a good one on Atlanta, which surprised me because it's a, an amazing show. It's got a really toxic fan base. I mean, get on Reddit and read the fucking treads. I mean, they're fucking children. But it's a great show. So maybe in the future, if anyone thinks it's a good idea, I will do an episode on season one and an episode of season two on Atlanta, but it'll take a little homework on my part. And a lot of people may not care for my opinions on the show, even though I think it's tremendous. There is something to be said for... Uh, another straight white guy giving his opinion on a dominantly black art form. You know, it's overdone. Let's say that you'll notice that there are a lot of a lot more white rappers, and in some instances, like Eminem, they're getting more credit and more acclaim than their African-American counterparts. And then you had the blues where you have someone like Eric Clapton who was well-renowned and most people don't even know who Robert Johnson is. You know, it is a problematic trope and me doing a couple episodes on Atlanta probably means nothing. It probably doesn't amount to anything and it probably wouldn't offend anybody but you never know so I'm going to stop talking about everything else and we're going to get into Nero this series Nero Avenging New America is a quasi sequel to Surviving New America which is a quasi sequel to Demise of the Trinity now you don't have to read those prior works in order to enjoy and understand Nero. The concept behind Nero is a postmodern take on superhero tropes, uh, especially Batman, and there's some Deadpool mixed in. Nero is a character in book two of Surviving New America. And the way I ended things with him, spoilers ahead... If you are somehow offended by spoilers in a book that you've never read, if you intend to read Surviving New America, I highly suggest that you go buy it and read it. If you have no intentions of buying it and reading it now, uh, shut the fuck up and listen, okay? So, Nero, in the end, leaves South Carolina where he was living with Birch and Rosa, 
and Birch is a very important character in both Demise and Surviving New America. He leaves with a character named Prudence, who was almost a love interest for Birch, and they go to Portland together. That is how his story ends. It's not how the book ends. Now, Prudence, for those of you who are unaware, is actually inspired by someone I was friends with last year. And she was a very awesome, intelligent person who made me laugh a lot. And I spoke to her. She introduced me to Euphoria. I watched Euphoria. loved that show. And after I deleted my Instagram in May, of course, I lost contact with her because that was the only way that I had really spoken to her other than how I discovered her through her TikTok channel. And she was aware that I had based prudence on her. Uh, now, I don't want anyone to... Uh, it's hard to admit this, but uh, I have standards of morality. And one of those standards, especially this year, is uh, get vaxxed. I got vaccinated in April, and this person made a statement on their Instagram stories and I was under the impression that they did not like Donald Trump and therefore they were of sound mind and they admitted that they had no intention to get vaccinated and I saw a lot of these a lot of photos of her um, out and about in public places, sometimes she had a mask on, sometimes she did not. And publicly admitting that you don't get vaxxed, but also with the qualifier that you don't think that people should be shamed for not wanting the vaccination. Well, it would be one thing if you had a, a health issue, um, whatever, but just stating that you're not going to get vaccinated and that people shouldn't be shamed for not wanting to get the vaccination. Look, this is a serious fucking issue here, okay? So that is one factor that led me to writing this series. Um, I had other plans for Nero all along, but this, this was a motivator in that I could dispel any illusion that the audience had that uh, Prudence and Nero would stay together. And so I wrote her out of these stories completely. She's barely even acknowledged. So the first chapter, first short story rather, is entitled 2130, and it takes place in Atlanta. And it starts as follows. I should have re-enlisted like my dad. Instead, I followed a woman to Portland and somehow ended up back in Atlanta. The house I grew up in didn't even leave a mark in the grass. After selling my property in Austin, I'm far from homeless. I definitely shouldn't be on the street tonight, wearing all black as if that makes me less suspicious. 
Having to duck under most doorways means people notice me no matter what I have on. Kier raised me to fight. Unlike the other two in the Trinity, I don't have as many bloodstones. Almost letting Kier drown in pig guts or blowing up the GM plant obviously makes me a bit problematic. Both times my rationale couldn't see every move before someone made it. I underestimated Dad. I got too invested in the idea of Sarah. Overall, I'm not bright, but I'm built better than most. I don't have to be smart because I can break a man's bones when he tries to use reason with me. I can stand in the middle of an army firing until their magazine's empty and start choking them out one by one. Why am I not a rabid serial killer? Because Dad taught me killing is wrong, even if he didn't follow that rule himself. What am I accomplishing tonight? Crime in Atlanta didn't stop just because we took out a mobster and a few demons. Unlike Birch, I don't want to let evil fester because people have free will to take or perpetuate lives. Now, I need an antagonist. Perhaps a rogue gallery? But what trouble comes out on the street? Aren't all the real evil men behind tall windows and big buildings or weighing their product on coffee tables? The thing about Atlanta police is they don't give a fuck. They put up the yellow tape around crime scenes for their coffee breaks. Maybe they were more proactive in old America. I only see them when it's time to vote. Otherwise, they're not patrolling our lives. For some people, that's freedom. What about protection? People who survived to see New America didn't need protection. That was 45 years ago, though. Theories like cause and effect or the monkey's paw apply here. Just because one gang failed in 2127 and Jamarin killed Sarah doesn't mean the end of evil. The flaw in God's plan for the Trinity was the inevitable response from the populace. It's sort of like building a bigger army which results in the enemy building a bigger army. Because I exist, someone wants to be my nemesis. Every night, I come out to meet them. Most people don't go out at night. They stay at home with their haptic mask for entertainment and go to bed. Businesses close right before the sun sets. Even bars can't stay open long into the darkness. When nothing's open, there's not much reason to leave home unless there's a medical emergency. If you're hungry and don't have anything to eat, you have to wait until morning, drink a glass of water and sit it out. So when I'm walking the sidewalk in a black hoodie, the few people outdoors take notice. Since the police aren't patrolling the streets, that leaves a special kind of person unaccounted for in Atlanta. While the bars turn their open neon signs off, their back rooms remain lit. I'm not a master of disguise who can blend into the poker crowd, but I have money. Since people don't want to drink unless they can't afford a haptic mask, bars tend to make their bank through liquor sales for the illegal gambling crowd. Do I want to bust open this black market of sin? My interest remains in those dangerous to humanity and the unshaven Bukowski clones aren't pushing old ladies off balconies. What'll it be, big guy? The dealer asked. 
I'm going to raise 100, I say. Two of the guys at the table toss their cards and do the typical sighing. Games tend to end early because I'm the only one able to put up that kind of green. The ones looking to make enough to cover their tab aren't the kind I'm after. I'll call. Big guy, the dealer asks. Let's go. I have a two of hearts, four of clubs, queen of spades, and a king of diamonds. The hand opposite mine is a flush. He doesn't even smirk when he pulls in the chips. May I ask the name of the man who beat me, I ask? Donnie, he he says. He's not wearing a suit or gold watch, but Donnie doesn't look like he lives on the street either. With a thrift shop bowling shirt and wrinkled khakis, I'm surprised he doesn't work at the bar. He and I are the only ones not sucking on a mug of beer. Another hand I offer? Donnie walks off without acknowledging the gesture. I follow, and the barflies avert their attention since my shadow seems to take up half the room. After Donnie crosses the street to the gravel parking lot, I see he has the only car on the entire block, a GM Adidas. Considering someone able to call my bet and afford a car wouldn't normally be in a backroom poker game, I don't have a terrible moral dilemma when I pull Donnie out of the car and get a good look at his unibrow in the streetlight. Such a hairy dude. Kind of short, too. Who's your bank, I ask. Fuck off, Donnie tries reaching for the pistol, poking out from the driver's seat. If you want to shoot me and wake everyone in the, in the neighborhood up, I stand Donnie up against the car and hand him the gun. With my arms open and my eyes wide, Donnie could kill me if I wasn't part of the Trinity. He goes as far as loading a bullet into the chamber, but just stares at me with his finger on the trigger. What you want, man? He asks. To know where you got the money for this car, I say. You think I lost that hand on accident? Well, turn around and walk away, Donnie says, and I won't kill you. You're too afraid of what might happen if you shoot that gun. Oh yeah? Then come at me and make it easier. If we struggle for the gun, he might shoot himself. I once saw a guy accidentally shoot his friend in the head when I surprised them. Sure, I'm not a murderer, but the blood stained my clothes just the same. Donnie, I say. If you shoot me, nothing's gonna happen. Well, nothing will happen to me. What do you like, Birch or something? He ain't real. Birch fucks my ex-girlfriend. I am Nero. Standing in front of the barrel, I force Donnie to hold the gun against my chest by grabbing his wrist, and I squeeze until he lets go, and the metal clinks against the gravel. Kicking the pistol away, I pinch the muscle between his neck and shoulder while leading him into the car. Wherever you're going, I get on the passenger side. Take me too. So that concludes the first story in this series. I like superhero origin movies and stories where they show how the hero has an impromptu cheap suit that they wear like Spider-Man or Batman, 
or Daredevil, Deadpool, and then they have to buy a or make a better suit later on. But with Nero, he never wears a suit. He doesn't really need to protect his identity for any reason. He doesn't have anyone in his life that he needs to protect from anyone, and he could literally kill anyone in the world except for Birch and Rosa. So, this was obviously very inspired by Batman, and he even says, I am Nero, as if he's saying, I am Batman. And I wanted to give it a detective feel, but not in the sense that he's ever been trained as a detective, but he's just acting on instinct, and he's investigating these backroom poker games just to sniff out anything that could be going wrong. And it doesn't tell you what happens after they drive off or what happens to Danny. That's never discussed later on in the other stories. But... It's sort of like Batman Year One, where he's gaining a reputation. And the antagonist of this series of short stories is really the Atlanta police in general. You have to, to think in terms of context for these stories. I wrote Surviving New America right around the time all the protest for Black Lives Matter and police, police brutality happened. So, those greatly influenced me, and they influenced these sets of short stories, and I always wondered what would happen if superheroes were involved with it. I mean, I said to my wife, we need Superman now more than ever, and the thought of nothing really being able to stop the corruption and terrible shit going on in this country, and there really isn't any such thing as a superhero. Well, that made me very sad. So I imagined what would happen if people in the Trinity encountered police officers and their interactions. And that led me to thinking about Batman, of course, because he cooperates with the police. And the thing about Nero is that unlike other people in the Trinity, he doesn't kill people. In Surviving New America, he doesn't kill anybody. Now, he's not blameless for anything. He does some heinous stuff, but he's still innocent of murder, at the very least. So, when we get into these stories, he's still carrying that rule, that one rule, that he won't kill people. He'll hurt them, for sure, but he won't take their lives. And he finds some creative ways to get around that. He doesn't kill anybody. Yeah, sure. But um, the things that he does to people are almost worse than death. And it shows you just how far someone like Batman could go to avoid breaking that rule while still inflicting a lot of pain on someone. That's what this series of short stories is all about. I'm examining these tropes and hopefully writing them in a way that is comparable or comparable to my other writings and is something that you could analyze and enjoy like any other really good work of literary fiction. Of course, this is very much a genre work. It's a mixture of genres, but 
all of my work is a mixture of genres. I mean, I promoted Surviving New America as kind of a Vonnegut-esque science fiction novel, but it's also not very heavy on science fiction, you know? I think I'm going to have to make this a series. I obviously can't read all eight stories in one episode, so we're going to pick up and get more involved with these these stories. I rambled a lot early on, but I hadn't rambled much in the past two episodes, of course. So there's that. If you would like to support Demise of the Podcast and myself, Patrick Attaway, you can go on Amazon and buy my books. I don't have a Patreon. I don't have a PayPal or anything where you can donate me money. This podcast doesn't cost me anything. It is just a passion project for me. It's not a professional podcast. Podcast. I don't do advertisements. I don't see myself doing advertisements, but you know, I already broke my rules about having someone on as a guest. So who knows what the future holds for demise of the podcast? But yeah, I really don't see myself doing ads. I do want to acknowledge someone who is a tremendous influence on this podcast, and that would be Hannah Phillips as she would say, the artist formerly known as MJP. Her dead name is Michael Jerome Phillips. She ran Bukowski.net in its forums. She has helped preserve works of Bukowski, and she has been highly critical of John Martin and the things that he's done to Bukowski's legacy posthumously through editing and whatnot, spreading myths about the man. But if you want a really good literary or rambling podcast to listen to, listen to This Is Not a Test. Now, only really recently has Hannah made her transition, and I mean that more metaphorically than literally, uh, she came out as trans, I think, la- late last year. It was around the time that she decided to stop um, perpetuating uh, the Bukowski forums. But there's a long backlog, um, and it's a great podcast. It influenced me tremendously. Also, if you play guitar or you just enjoy hearing about music and the craft and the behind-the-scenes work for us, listen to Chasing Tone with Brian Wampler. Brian Wampler is a great pedal designer. I have, I think, nine Wampler pedals. I just started buying them last year because of his podcast. He's a great guy. His podcast is highly entertaining, I have not subscribed to the Patreon yet. I don't know that I will. I think I want to let a backlog of episodes build up before I, you know, shell out the seven bucks a month. I want you to have a great weekend and happy reading. Thank you for listening.